Lord's Day 8. It's our confession of the Holy Trinity in the Heidelberg Catechism. Yes, Lord's Day 8, I'll ask the question, let us respond together. Question 24 asks, and the articles here are the Apostles' Creed. How are these articles divided? Answer, into three parts. God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And question 25, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Answer, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask that you look upon us with grace. Look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves. And we look away from ourselves to look to your Son, our mediator and Savior. And we look to your Son because in him all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So guide us, dear Lord, by your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, into the true understandings of the doctrine of Christ. And may our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name. So we pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Amen. Within the Trinity lies the heartbeat of salvation. Within the Trinity lies the heartbeat of salvation. So in salvation, we hear God the Father choose us before the foundation of the earth. We hear the Son redeem us at his cross, and we hear the Holy Spirit seal us, seals the elect, seals us to Christ that we might find in him the joy of our salvation. A wonderful text that expresses this truth so clearly, one we're familiar with, I'm sure, is Ephesians chapter 1. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him, the Father chose us, and he did not choose us in just anything, but he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. As he says elsewhere in Romans, that God chose us, chose us even before we've done anything good or bad, so that God's election may stand firm. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And so God has chosen us before we have done anything that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's chosen us to righteousness. And in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, adopted in Christ, the purpose of God's will, the glorious grace which he's blessed us in the beloved. And we also know that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, he says, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word, because faith comes by, Hearing, and when you hear that word, that faith comes, the gospel comes, truth comes, and he says, and you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Trinitary, the Trinity. The Trinity. And the gospel as we hear in Ephesians, the gospel according to Ephesians, the gospel defines who God is in Christian theology. Now, that's an important statement I just made. I want to repeat it. The gospel defines who God is in Christian theology. And we hear that the gospel is not something we do. We are not Trinity. We're not Trinity. We're not God. 
Although there are traditions who seem to want to take the place of God in salvation, we know salvation is Trinitarian. Salvation is not humanitarian. Now, humanitarianism is good. And we should applaud humanitarian efforts. Humanitarianism is the work or the fulfillment of the great commandment. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Humanitarianism is great. It's the great commandment. And as we practice humanitarianism, we're loving our neighbor. We're coming alongside and we're helping neighbor. Helping neighbor in their time of need. Coming alongside and sharing life with neighbor. And weeping with those who weep. Serving those with needs. And giving of ourselves. Love your neighbor. We must love our neighbor. And in so doing, we fulfill the great commandment. Our love and Christian service is important. And as important as the great commandment is, and as important as our love for one another is, our love does not save us. And our love does not save our neighbor. We are not saved by the great commandment. We are saved by the great commission. And in the Great Commission, God the Father has sent His Son. And He sends His Son, that Word of God that is being preached throughout the ends of the earth. He sends His Word and His sacraments. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Word and sacraments work. And lo, I am there with you always. God is with us. Christ is with us. Saving us. Redeeming us. The Great Commission is the work of salvation. The Great Commission is the love of God, and the love of God saves us. Now, this is the work of the ministry of the Word and the sacraments, or as the world calls it, foolishness, or as the religious call it, or may call it, a stumbling block. Why is the preaching of the gospel a stumbling block to the religious? Because they are looking to their humanitarianism to save them. And when we come along, we eschew all humanitarianism and we preach Christ. And the world says that's foolish. And the religious say that's a stumbling block. The stumbling block to our good works. It's foolishness. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God under salvation. And that power is Trinitarian. It's a Trinitarian power. So we don't do the gospel. God does the gospel. And we simply believe the gospel and are delivered by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation is Trinitarian. And this not only means that salvation is the work of God alone, it means that not all roads lead to God. Only one road leads to God, and that's the road on the Great Commission. That's the road of grace. It's the road that leads us to the cross. Only one road leads to God. Through the means of grace, we hear and believe we receive, and what we receive in this one true religion is a Trinitarian God, and we have fellowship with the Holy Trinity. Now, the ancient Christian creeds make this point. The Athanasian Creed states, we just confessed this a couple of months ago, the Athanasian Creed, it states, I quote, whosoever will be saved be all, before all things, before, any, before you lay anything out, the creed says, before all things, before your good works, before the Christian church, 
before your membership, before your baptism, before all these things, it is necessary that the Christian hold the Catholic faith. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. We need Trinity. And so the Heidelberg takes its lead from this creed and begins its section on grace because now we're beginning that section on the grace. We've been in, we've been in the grace section, but as, as now as the confession is, is going to start unlocking the doctrines of grace, it begins with Trinity. To, in order to discover grace, the, the catechism says you got to know Trinity. That means to study grace is really to a beginning, is a, is a study of the Trinity. To know the Trinity, we will know the grace of God. Grace is found in the Trinity. And in this grace, we find that Christianity is thoroughly Trinitarian. Or at least it's supposed to be. And so question 24 asks, how are these articles divided? And question 24 begins to exposit the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism is built off exposition of three important texts in Christendom. Heidelberg Catechism is really built off exposition of three important texts in uh, Christendom. One of them is non-canonical, and two of them are canonical. And we begin this evening with the first non-canonical text, and that text is the Apostles' Creed. And then it's followed by two canonical creeds, that being uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments and then Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Now, it is interesting that there's a non-canonical text, that there's an exposition of the non-canonical text. I mean, we get an exposition of a canonical text, but why the exposition of a non-canonical text? And why begin with a non-canonical text? <laughs> I was trying not to trip over my tongue saying all that. I think it's important because the Apostles' Creed, it, it establishes the ecumenicity of the catechism. It establishes the history of the catechism and the Catholicity of the catechism. One holy, undoubted Catholic faith, as we confessed last week. We confess one holy, undoubted Catholic faith. And the creed is our undoubted Catholic faith, the Apostles' Creed. Now, in the division of the creed, we find the entire economy of cre creation, redemption, and sanctification. And we find that this is the work of three. So the articles, are, the Apostles' Creed is actually uh, divided into three parts. The first part is God the Father. I believe in God the Father, and it explores our creation. The second, I believe in God the Son, and that explores our deliverance. And thirdly, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that is an exposition or an understanding of our sanctification. So the, 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 the Apostles' Creed is thoroughly Trinitarian. So creation, redemption, sanctification is the work of three. The work of creation and salvation is performed by three. Namely, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean there are three gods. No, there is one God. The beginning premise of Scripture itself is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And we need to confess the Shema, Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. And we need to hear. And when we come to church, we need to hear Trinity. We don't, do, we don't necessarily want to speak about Trinity in worship. We want to speak to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And know that this God is one. Not just an Old Testament truth. It's a New Testament truth. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Paul writes, yet for us there is one God, 
here in the new covenant, as in the old covenant, here for us, one God. And then Paul says, the Father from whom all from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, all, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul explains in this text that we are Shema Christians, <laughs> one God. And that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We're not saying there are three gods. We are saying there is one God, one in essence, one God who is three persons. So orthodoxy worships one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. We speak of one essence and three persons in the Godhead. And so it goes on to ask, so since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? I mean, if there's only one God, why are we saying there's Father? Why are we talking about three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer, I love the answer, because that's how God revealed himself, right? It doesn't... It doesn't jump into a bunch of philosophy and theology, but it simply says what is true. That's how God has revealed himself in his word. God has revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons, three distinct persons are one true God, one true eternal God. So we confess one divine being. There's one intelligent designer. The fact that the universe came into being is reasonable, it makes sense that the universe came into being. It would be uh, irrational to say that the world has always been. The universe can't have always, there has to be a beginning. And if there's a beginning, it makes sense. There is one who, who moved, who moved creation, who began creation. And that one who has began creation has to be God, has to be powerful, has to be single-minded, has to be powerful and smart Something outside the material realm had to get this world going. One divine being. It is senseless to believe that the world came from nothing, and that's what atheistic religion wants us to believe. So many people in the world, scholarly people with lots of PhDs behind their name, will get up and wax eloquent, and what they will say is, hey, everything comes from nothing. And then we say, yeah, I've experienced that. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I've, you know. Someone knocks on the door at my home, and you know what I say to my kids? My kids say, somebody's knocking at the door. I say, no, the door just knocked itself. And they say, oh, yes, that makes sense, Daddy. No, they like, you, no, they look at me cross, you know, and they go answer the door, and there's somebody at the door. Because doors just don't knock themselves. The world doesn't just create itself. There has to be a knocker. There has to be a creator. And everything came by one divine being who is Trinity. God the Father spoke, and by the word, everything came to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these three distinct persons are well represented in Scripture, each demonstrating their role in the economy of creation and redemption. So we confess one divine being who is three persons, God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, and it's easy enough to see in Scripture. Now, it's easy enough to see God the Father in Scripture. It's very easy. There's lots of proof texts, right? It's not hard to argue that God the Father is God. What about God the Son? I believe it's easy. Now, this is not the same exact hermeneutic. There's actually not a text in Scripture that says, Jesus is God, co-eternal with the Father, eternal, 
No, there's no text that says that, but as we explore Scripture by good and necessary consequences, as we look at Scripture, Scripture scripture will just show us clearly that that Jesus is God, though it does not say that he is co-eternal with the Father and so forth. But Jesus will do the things of God, right? He will forgive sins. Who can forgive sins? But God alone. Jesus, I love the I am sayings, the I am, the Yahwistic sayings of Jesus. He's basically saying, I'm Yahweh, people. Before Abraham was born, me, I am. I'm the great I am. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am life itself. Before the world existed, Jesus says, I am. That's proof that he's God. He says, I am. He forgives sins. And what does he do? What what does Jesus do when the disciples worship him? He receives it because he's God. What do angels do when they worship them? They say, get up, get up. (laughs) I'm an angel. Or when the disciples get worshiped, get up, you know. Paul like rips his robes, you know, don't worship me, I'm a man, stand up. Not Jesus. Jesus says, yes, more. (laughs) I'm God. And of course, the, the apocalyptic text tells us in Revelation that Jesus is the alpha and omega. In the beginning, he's the architect who builds, and he is the omega finisher who finishes. Jesus is God, as clear as day in Scripture. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? It's the same way we look at the Holy Spirit. There's no text in the Bible that says, hey, right here, Holy Spirit is co-eternal with the Father and the Son, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. But we see God, the Holy Spirit, in the same fashion as we see the Son. We see God, the Holy Spirit, do the works of creation, like the Father and the Son. We see God, the Holy Spirit, do the works of providence as the Father. We see God, the Holy Spirit, regenerate like the Father. We see God, the Holy Spirit, resurrect like the Father. And we see the Holy Spirit receive worship. And in Acts 5, he's actually called God. And how are we baptized in Christianity? I think that's a really important text that answers the Trinitarian question. Are we baptized into one? Yes, we are baptized into one God who is three persons. The Father, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God clear in scripture. And when we say God is three in persons, one in essence, when we define the Trinity, or not define, but when we explain the doctrine of the Trinity, we are not explaining irrationality. Now, it might be incomprehensible how the three persons share in the one divine essence, but it is not irrational to say that God is one in three persons. And God is incomprehensible as it respects our thoughts and our knowledge of him. And here, the Trinity, when we explore in the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us of, our, of the, hum, the humble nature of theology. It reminds us that we are to humble ourselves, and we are to look to God's Word, as the Catechism says, and believe what is revealed. And that is an important place for us in our theology. And you've heard me say this, and I, and I say it over and over again because it's very important, but in Christian theology, we do not define God. We don't stand over God and define God and tell God who he is. No, in Christian theology, we simply describe God as he is revealed in his word. So a good, solid orthodoxy is is a very humble theology. 
It only, re, it only deals with what is revealed, and it only seeks to describe what is revealed. So we, we describe who God is. We don't define God. So this sets our place before God in a very humble place where we are bowing to his glory, seeking to know our God, but only seeking to know our God as he's revealed in his word, in his word alone. Very important. So this means that we come to God with a sense of fear and with reverence and awe. And we come to God's word, and when we come to God's word in this place, the right place, we find our Trinitarian God. And this is our Catholic description. The eternal Father who from eternity begot the Son in his own image. The Son who is the co-eternal image of the Father and the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, as has been divinely revealed by the sure word of God, is our Savior, and he is our God. And this eternal Father with the Son and the Holy Spirit created heaven and earth and all creatures. And this Trinitarian God is present with all his creatures. He's preserving all his creatures. And every good and perfect gift comes from this Trinitarian God who is blessing his people. And this Trinitarian God, God the Father, is elected before the foundation of church. And God the Son has died for this church. And to receive this church as a gift from the Father, and then the Son returns the gift to his Father. In thankful gratitude. And the Holy Spirit seals us all together in this Godhead, that he might produce in us holiness and righteousness. So the God, the Father, chooses us from the human race, an everlasting church from the human race for the sake of his Son. And the Holy Spirit binds this church to the Son that the Father may be received in them. And we learn in the Trinity that our God is above us, our God is before us, and our God is within us. And God is the gospel. The Trinitarian God is the gospel. Often when you teach theology, I teach theology at uh, Valley Christian School, and the teachers always want to know, what's the application? What are the, what's the application for what they're learning? And I'm like, well, they just need to know. <laughs> That's the application. They need to memorize this stuff. They don't like those answers. No, what's the, what are they going to do with this stuff? I'm like, they're going to know it. <laughs> they're going to rightly know and they're going to rightly live. And what's the application of the Trinity? Well, the application of the Trinity is salvation, to rightly know our Savior, to rightly know our God. But the other application that we find in the Trinity is worship. Lex orendi, lex credendi. The way of worship is the way of life. And if we want a Trinitarian life, we need to have Trinitarian worship. Our liturgy must be full of the Trinity. To worship rightly, it needs to be Trinitarian. To begin our worship needs to be Trinitarian. We need to begin our worship through baptism, where we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in our liturgy, a sound liturgy must be Trinitarian, where we worship, pray, confess, and lament to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. We're blessed by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we may not empty our worship of the Trinity, for to do so is to lose the, word, the power in worship. So as I said before, we cannot simply talk Trinity. And we're talking Trinity now, but it doesn't do enough. It's not enough to simply talk Trinity. In your life, you must talk to the Father. So when you pray, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So talk to your Father in heaven. And when you pray, pray in Jesus' name. 
And know that the Lord hears your prayers by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it isn't enough to simply talk Trinity. We must talk to God, our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we do well to worship this God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For within the Trinity lies the heartbeat of salvation, and within the Trinity lies the life of worship. And this is our Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Amen. Let us pray. And let us pray to our God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To the last, how awesome would it be if there was such a unity of the churches? I mean, that's one of the reasons I love our name the United Reformed Churches, right? We're united. What are we united on? I mean, we're all spread across the nation. Are we united on our hope of, uh, of getting, you know, the next Republican in the White House? No. Are we united on, I mean, what are we united on? No, we're united on creeds. We're united on confessions. How awesome would it be if we could all be united? Instead of a million different denominations, a million different churches, there's just one visible church. How awesome. And that's really the dream. And I'm talking visible church. I'm not talking invisible church. Yeah, invisible church. Yes, yes, Catholic. But what about visibly? Wouldn't it be awesome if we were visibly united? That's really the dream and the hope of the Reformed churches. That's why the Reformed churches established NAPARC in the United States. You know, we're members of the United, you know, it says right here in the back of our bulletin. I just kind of point this out. Covenant Reformed Church a member of the United Reformed Church in America. That's this church's way. Covenant Reformed Church is saying, we're not our own. We belong to the United Reformed Churches in America. URCNA.org. Check it out. Wonderful website. It's old, but hey. But not only are we in the United Reformed Churches, look at that. The United Reformed Church is a member of the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council. NAPARC.org. Check it out. NAPARC.org. That's our way of the Reformed churches in America saying, we want to be united. We have a dream to truly belong to one another. But then notice, beyond that, Napark churches are members, and we are a member of the ICRC, icrconline.com. Check it out. The International Conference of Reformed Churches. Excuse me. That is the way the Reformed Church is trying to be one. We literally have, and what's awesome, I mean, the reason the, the reason Reformed churches have synods and classes, well, there's lots of reasons we have synods and classes, but one of the most important reasons we have synods and classes is to share this unity together. And the beauty of the United Reformed Churches, I'm not sure about all the Reformed denominations, but when the United Reformed Churches have synods and classes, and we are especially at synod, when we invite delegates from other United Reformed Churches to our synods, those delegates who are recognized vote on our overtures in the URCNA. And that's our way of the URCNA saying, we're one. You authorize delegates, you can now vote on matters that belong to us. That's our way that we are trying to show this unanimity. And then we send representatives and delegates to NAPARC, and then NAPARC tries to help the, and show the unanimity we have in the North American churches. And then we send delegates ever so often to the ICRC every time they meet. And the ICRC is this international, this worldwide federation of United Reformed Churches, if you will, Presbyterian and Reformed. I love it. It's the Reformed dream. And the reason we dream this dream is we together want to arrive at the one and same 
truth because we all recognize together that truth is fixed. And since truth is fixed and Catholic, we want to be apostolic. And this is the apostolic face. Question 23, we confess it every morning, but we must confess it again tonight. Question 23, what are the articles? That is, what is the summary? What is the gospel? Now notice we're asking, what is the gospel or the summary taught in the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith? So the question here really is, what is the gospel? What is the Catholic undoubted Christian faith? And the answer, let's answer together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is the Apostles' Creed. Now, the confession is going to explore this Apostles' Creed for the next many Lord's Days. I'm not quite sure how many, but it goes on for a while under this grace section discussing the Apostles' Creed. Now, we have to recognize that, and hopefully you do recognize, that the Apostles' Creed actually wasn't written by the Apostles. I hate to inform you that the Apostles, we don't call it the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles didn't gather at some synod and write this together. We call it the Apostles' Creed because this is the truth that the Apostles delivered to the church. And what we do, what we say when we believe in this Apostles' Creed is we believe the Apostles handed this truth down to the church, and the church gathered together for the first couple of hundred years, and they collated all of the truths of the apostles. And they collated, they interpreted, and they have given and bequeathed to the church what we believe concerning this undoubted Catholic Christian faith. So these are the truths that we must all be united together as the visible church. So they delivered, to, they delivered it to us, and about 1,700 years ago, we affirmed it together. And now, in this point of history, to deny this undoubted Catholic faith, by this time in history, to deny this undoubted, with all the history that we've had in the 1,700 years to know this truth and to turn to God's word, to affirm, like to be good Bereans and test this truth, the church has had 1,700 years. So to deny an article of this faith today is really to be a cult or a secretarian. Now, a cult is someone who denies these truths explicitly, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, and there's others. Those are the big two, right, in our country, but there's many other cults. And the Secretarian is a, is a church that denies it by ignoring it and not even knowing it exists. Not even knowing our undoubted Catholic, apostolic faith. You see, the Apostles' Creed is the true interpretation of what you must believe in order to be saved. It is the truth of God's word concerning the work of God and salvation, and it's the fixed truth of Christ's church. 
which we have been confessing together in worship for about 1,700 years. So Covenant Reformed Church, of which you are a member, a member of the United Reformed Churches, the North American, American Presbyterian Reformed Council, and the ICRC is an old-fashioned faith, not as in 50 years ago, but as in 1,700 years ago, and even more 2,000 years ago. And this is our undoubted Catholic faith. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.